Okay. Uh, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. And as usual, this is a Tuesday episode. So our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren, is here with us. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning, Bradley. How are you? It's good. So we're going to do a few things today. I just kind of want to lay it all out. Um, tomorrow is congressional primaries and state senate primaries in New York. Uh, there are a couple of really interesting and fun races. Chris Coffey uh, and Megan Collins are going to join me later in the week uh, to talk about you know what happened and why and all of that. So it's not that we're ignoring it. We'll get to it. Um, mobile voting, we're talking about a little bit. The UK Conservative Party is using it uh, in their primaries, and that's pretty fascinating. Um, but I wanted to start with a topic that I've just been thinking and wondering about lately. Um, and I'm going to read what I wrote simply because I think it might capture it better. And then Hugo and I will, will jump into a discussion from there. So Hugo, that worked for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go go right ahead, Bradley. Right. Um, and this is all prompted by the reaction to the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago. So um, authoritarianism is often a GOP trait. Fine. It's been that way at least since Nixon. It's how Trump won in 2016. But what's remarkable is how it now shifts with Trump. If law enforcement is pursuing him, law enforcement is now bad, as evidenced by Trumpers saying we should defund the FBI. Um, facts don't matter at all. You see liberals become more authoritarian when they're scared. And that's, you know, there's that saying uh, a liberal, a conservative liberal who's been mugged. Um, and that reflects their personal experience. But there's now a world of Americans, a significant portion, who are willing to accept that up is down, black is white. And it, yes, it's allegiance to Trump, but it's really, it's more than that, right? It's allegiance to a point of view that matters to them more than reality itself. And vaccination is the perfect example because we know that you are less likely to die if you're vaccinated from COVID than not. And yet a third of this country still refused to, to get the shots. So we know all the reasons why at least some Americans have evolved in this way. And it's globalism and kind of the mediocrity of our school system, the opioid academic, kind of a, a sense of laziness and entitlement. Um, but to justify um, that evolution, that point of view, people seem to go to any length, whether it's storming the Capitol, trying to overturn democratically held elections, um, seeing the FBI fall when the president might have stolen classified documents. And it, it's, a, it's become their truth and validating it matters more than what we now see as objective reality. But, and here's where I'm going to pivot in a way that's going to surprise a little bit. What if the truth is a relative concept to begin with? The FBI is good when they go after Trump, but what about when they went after MLK? Were they still good? Violence is abhorrent, except when we need it to justify our own safety, then if it's necessary. Maybe in a world where individuals do have the capacity to think and decide, people choosing not to be deluded, choosing to be deluded is not authoritarianism, it's not fascism, it's evolution, it's freedom. These are scary ideas because they help justify Trumpism and all kinds of terrible things. But we live in a country that prioritizes individual rights, whether it's gun ownership or the right to sleep on the street or stop the right to, to not have to be stopped and frisked over collective benefit and wisdom. That's literally the founding principle of our country. I obviously think the FBI was right to raid Trump if he took classified documents. But my logic differs from others. And so while an absence of universal truth is unsettling and destabilizing, it's also perhaps what people have a right to. And if we truly prioritize individual liberties ahead of convention, tradition, and the good of the whole, then why is the reaction to the FBI rate surprising or even objectively wrong? And to take it one step further, what if it turns out that all people really want is affirmation and validation? The entire thesis of this podcast is every policy output is shaped by a political input, but we apply it to politicians and people in and around the political specter. Um, what if it's just humanity broadly, um, that what people need 
more than truth, more than safety, is to feel validated. Um, and if that's the case, is there a way to give people this that doesn't require animosity, doesn't require polarization, doesn't require hate? Um, and I've been studying uh, dialectical behavioral therapy recently uh, over the last couple of months, and, and it's a whole practice uh, of psychological thought where basically you hear what someone says, you validate it, and you're able to still kind of get to the right place without ever invalidating their feelings, right? And while it may sound a little wishy-washy or, or flighty, um, it really works and it gets you to where you need to be. It's an effective strategy. Um, so, you know, what if we taught DBT in school? What if we use it societally? Is there a way to recognize that people need this affirmation and validation and give it to them that doesn't require, you know, the, the constant sort of polarization, isolation that we have today? So that's that's what I wrote in a nutshell. Okay, I, look, it's it's it, there's just obviously a ton of shit to talk about there. I want to I want to start by um, raising a hypothetical, um, okay. and here's the hypothetical. You ready? Yeah. Um, the Biden administration comes to Tusk Strategies um, yeah. and says, "Hey, we're getting the shit kicked out of us on this FBI thing. We don't really understand how or why. Um, what do we need to do to communicate what we were trying to do there?" And what the role of the FBI is more broadly in the country? Like, how do we how do we stop shadow boxing with these impossible to deal with sort of objections to the FBI? How do we how do we bring people into a better understanding? What would you do? So, the, the, of course, this is politics, right? So the, the first thing is not to throw water on your thing. They're not going to ask that because the people who are upset are never going to vote for Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee is in twenty twenty four anyway. So therefore, they are relevant. They don't count, right? They are not their primary voters. Second, the question would be, okay, the Biden administration might be concerned about this if they think that the dissatisfaction with the raid has spread from hardcore Trumpers to independent voters, right, or swing voters. Um, and that's when all of a sudden you have to start thinking about it and worrying about it. That, that clearly has not happened here. Um, but I guess if it did, then the question is, what would you say to them, right? And I think the first thing you have to do gets back to the DBT therapy concept that I mentioned earlier, which is understand why people are upset and accept their feelings as valid and rational. What we tend to do is just try to invalidate everyone all the time by saying in the loudest voice we can, you're wrong and here's why you're wrong and here's why you're stupid and here's why I'm smart. And we basically make ourselves feel smart at the expense of making other people feel small and bad. And the opposite is really how we should do it. So, okay, so if independent voters, swing voters are saying, we are concerned about what the FBI did here for reasons A, B, and C, the first thing you have to do is say back to them what their concerns are so they feel like you're hearing them, they feel like you understand them, and then say, yes, those concerns are totally valid. And as a result of those concerns, here's why we did A, B, and C, right? Lean into it and show that, that you're taking their uh, concerns and their mentality seriously, and that you're working within that framework rather than just telling them they're stupid and they're wrong. Um, but unfortunately, that's what we do. In the case of, of people you know, saying defund the FBI because they, they went to get back the, the stolen classified documents, what's the, what's the underlying concern there? That that the government doesn't work for them, that it works for Democrats and liberals. Yeah, I, th I think it's that the the government is. I think they feel like um, Trump, who is a personification of their hopes, dreams, fears, anxieties, everything else, 
is being unfairly persecuted by a Democratic uh, FBI and a Democratic presidential administration um, because they want to take him down in any way that they possibly can, right? And I think what you have to be able to maybe do here is separate um, the emotions around Trump himself um, from the action of what the FBI did, right? So I think you'd have to validate, like, yeah, I totally get why you feel like this is unfair, this is punitive, this is targeted specifically towards one person who's thinking about running for re-election. And there's obviously a school of thought that this is to try to stop him from doing that. Um, and that's a totally fair way to feel. Here's what we had. Part of it is just laying out the case a lot more. Here's what we think was missing. Here's what we're concerned about. Here was what the risk was. And in order to protect our country, our safety, your safety, your kids' safety, this is why we did what we did. Don't you um, think they're doing that, though? Not really. You know, there's a lot of like, this has to be redacted, and we can't talk about this, and it might have been classified. And look, there are situations where if they were to, maybe the fact is, if they were very, very explicit about what everything was that they're worried about, that would cause a national security problem that we're not kind of thinking of right now. And as a result, they're better off taking the beating than they are revealing all the information. But if the reason they're not revealing the information is because they're just bad at communications and optics and politics, as opposed to legitimate national security concerns, in this case, I would open the kimono completely. Um, and you know what? If it turns out that there was really nothing in there at all that's problematic, um, then they shouldn't have gone in there in the first place, and they're going to have egg on their face. But I think the odds of that being the case are really, really low. They are, you think? Yeah. I mean, I just don't – look, the FBI, DOJ, Merrick Garland, they're not stupid people, right? Even if they despise Trump, they understand that the hold he has on a significant portion of the American electorate, and they're not just going to go – raid Mar-a-Lago without any basis to do so, maybe not not out of respect for him or anything else or respect for the law, but just because they know that it will backfire, right? So they're only going in when they have something. Look, you saw in New York, both Tish James and Alvin Bragg, who are, you know, hardcore Democrats who in no way ever rely on a single Trump voter for anything, still not prosecute him criminally because they didn't have enough, right? And their view was, I'm not going to indict or go after the sitting president or the former president of the United States of America, if I don't have the, the the goods to win, right? So I think the FBI sees it the same way, which means I just can't see a world where they went in there without knowing that meaningfully classified documents had been removed. Now, I do think it is possible that they were removed purely due, due to incompetence and stupidity as opposed to a deliberate attempt to steal documents or hide the truth or sell them to Putin or anything else. You know, you have an administration there that was so wildly incompetent. And by the end, any good people they managed to attract were long, long gone, um, that it is easy to see how like literally they didn't even know what they were doing. Um, and that's possible. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I, I think this is one of those cases where uh, less would be or more would be more. I guess. Now, in a sense, so the, uh, the most recent poll that I saw, NBC uh, news poll showed that 57% of Americans think that the investigations into Trump's wrongdoing should continue, uh, compared to 40% who think it shouldn't. So in a, in a sense, that's an almost perfect kind of math for the Democrats, right? So you got 40%, um, presumably all Republicans or nearly all Republicans. Mm -hmm. So th that's plenty. There's to like 7%. So look, part of it gets into approval ratings versus 
uh, actual votes cast in elections. And we've talked about this before, that right. it used to be that approval, rate, approval ratings and kind of fave unfave was a really good correlation for your ability to get reelected. Um, that's no longer the case. But if you look at Trump's numbers, it's still roughly about a third of the voters truly like him and support him. So at 40 percent, I'd at least want to know who that other 7 percent is. And do I need to worry about those people? Right. Interesting. Um, so how often do you we're going to switch out of this topic in a second because we've got a bunch of other things we want to talk about. But I'm curious, how often do you engage in any kind of meaningful discussion with Trump voters or some, like do you, like and it doesn't I don't mean in a professional context even, but like you know, sitting next to somebody at a Mets game. Very, or- very, I mean, honestly, we all live in our bubbles, right? I live in a bubble of wealthy Manhattans, right? And my kids go to fancy private schools. And when I sit at the Mets game, I'm sitting right behind the plate and tickets that most people can't afford. And now the house that I'm sitting in upstate right now happens to be in a community that is kind of both middle class and fancy. And we do socialize with our neighbors. And some of them clearly are Trump voters, but there's sort of a clear unspoken truce uh, on both sides, not just us, but everyone to not talk about it. Right. So there's kind well, of a if you like, why not talk about it? I mean, not to start an argument, but like, I'd be curious. You're yeah, not- because like one, you're one of the more intellectually curious people I've ever met. But I think these are people who have all lived on the same lake for decades, by and large. They all congregate every weekend at the same spot and hang out with each other. And they want to be able to keep doing that. And when politics enters into it, especially Trump, it causes really hard feelings. And so in order to preserve their community more broadly, they've made the choice not to talk about this issue specifically. It's interesting. I, I, I met a guy who was a friend of a friend, and he had served in the military. Um, he's probably about 30 years old now. And he, he we went out with a bunch of people, and he, he made some some crack early in the evening about, you know, the government being behind the, you know, the destruction of the World Trade Center. And I thought it was a joke. And then and then a little while later, he said something similar. And I, I just asked him, I was like, well, do you think that's what happened? There was like a government conspiracy to like, you know, cause the towers to 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 be destroyed. And he said, no, I don't have a particular theory that I believe in. But after working in the military, I see the extent to which the sort of security state will go to perpetuate itself. And it makes sense to me that people in the security apparatus knew that the attack was coming and chose not to do anything about it. Um, and I was kind of blown away because he was an intelligent guy, like not a not a Yahoo at all. Yeah. Um, and he was saying something that, you know, as a New Yorker, I find like utterly I- incomprehensible. Well, but let me ask you a question. So I, I don't agree with what he's saying, but he's not. First, I was, what I thought you were going to say was like, what do you say to that person? And my thought was like, look. It's not so much that you want to argue the World Trade Center conspiracy theory with them one way or the other. It's why does he think that this is even possible and true? What are the underlying emotions that he has that led to that? And how can you address him on that level? But in this case, you know, we are talking about someone that seems to have a decent amount of expertise and knowledge and clearly the ability to, to drive at an informed opinion, not one that you or I agree with. But I think in his case, I would actually go the other way with it and say, like, okay, like, I I see how you feel that way. My guess is that's not what happened. But look, we do know um, that at least a lack of coordination between the FBI and CIA led to them to miss lots and lots of clues that could have potentially prevented this. Right. So he's taking it a step or two further. Is he right? Probably not. You know, I'm not kind of a conspiracy theorist in that way. 
But I don't know, based on the credentials you said, if that's his view and that, and he didn't say it to you in some sort of crazy, like we have to. No, no, he, he wasn't. He was, and he wasn't an asshole about it at all. Like that was. I don't know. Was, I, I think that that's totally fine and valid. Um, let's talk about mobile voting. Um, yeah. So I'm going to read the top of the of the Wall Street Journal article about this just to give everybody the, the lay of the land. Um, members of the UK's ruling Conservative Party who are voting to decide the country's next prime minister are for the first time casting ballots online in a leadership election, a rarity among democracies wary of Internet voting because of cybersecurity concerns. Um, so tell me, um, this is kind of a big deal in, in, yeah. in a world that you care very much about and, and are very active in. Tell me a little bit about what's your reaction to. I, I want to talk about the reporter in that story, but first, oh, to- yeah, we'll get into the sort of nebbishy reporter who has no balls. But like, but the, the underlying point is this: someone is doing mobile voting, and I had nothing to do with it, and that's fantastic, right? Because <laughs> what I know is that if it's just me and my team running this campaign and carrying the banner on this thing, we're not going to win, right? As you know, dedicated as we are, as hard as we work, as much money as we're putting into this, you know, we are one very, very small force in the big scheme of things. And if it requires us to take the ball from, you know, end zone to end zone, it ain't going to happen, right? But if there are people all over the country and all over the world who feel the same way and are acting on it, then we can take the work that we're doing, collaborate with the work that they're doing, build some momentum, build a movement that actually can succeed, right? And right. so I didn't know they were doing Now, once I read that article after I forwarded it to you, I reached out to someone and said, can you get me a, a call with you know whoever the conservative party in the UK is doing this? And I think that'll happen. Um, and I'll say, hey, we've got this technology we're building and going forward, you know, we think it's going to be the best, both the most encrypted secure software and also the best defense to you know, criticism from uh, opponents and media. So we'd love to just give it to you for free. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, it was it was thrilling to me because if, if I have to do this on my own, I'm going to fail and it's really depressing. And I will have also wasted a tremendous amount of time and money. And so just seeing independent support out there was incredibly validating. One of the one of the examples they cite where mobile voting is, is in fact flourishing is Latvia, and I was curious how useful is that case to making your argument. I mean, le- less so because Americans couldn't tell you where Latvia is in a map, whereas most people could could pick out the UK. Um, look, it makes sense. Did you pick out the UK? <laughs> I think so. I was I was questioning that as I was saying it, but yeah, I, I think so. Um, so, but with Latvia. And look, Estonia is a lot like this too, which you have these Eastern European countries that have really good kind of STEM education. A lot of it came out of the Soviet system. And for all of the flaws of the Soviet system, they were good at certain things. And that was one of them. Um, and as a result, um, they have small, highly educated populations um, who are probably not as polarized as our country because they're much more homogenous countries. And as a result, they are able to get their heads around sort of complicated ideas like mobile voting um, a lot faster. But because you know Latvia is so unlike the U.S. in its size, in its homogeneity, homogeneity was that the word? I'm not sure what the right word is. Homogeneity. Homogeneity. Um, and in its educational sort of system and background, it's not really that applicable to us. Whereas when Australia did it recently on their iVote system, even though it didn't work, but it didn't work because the demand was so massive that it overwhelmed the system. That's a good problem as far as I'm concerned because it right. proves the underlying point, right? Yeah, they need better technology, but guess what? We're only like 
six to eight months away from finishing it and I'll give it to them for free. Right. Um, so that or the UK, you know, I, I think we need things that are more uh, knowable and relatable to us, you know, for it to be helpful politically. Um, okay, I want to take a minute to shit on this story in the Wall Street Journal because um, although I agree with you that the underlying news was was pretty exciting, um, the the general tone and orientation of the story was really negative yeah. about like why this is probably a bad idea. Quotes a bunch of academics saying like, "Yeah, this is not going to work," and you know there are all these uh, concerns about security and all this. And there was there was one. So, so rather than kind of broaden out and be like, hmm, what might this, um, this sort of UK uh, 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 election mean for, you know, like the US, it just said, advocates of online voting in the US and elsewhere say the method could boost turnout, trim costs and help disabled and overseas voters, though they acknowledge some security risk is unavoidable. So uh, you're probably the number one advocate for mobile voting in, in the US, would you say, or certainly right up there, right? I mean, there's no one I'm bigger. Not- aware of anyone else devoting as much time and money and political capital. Yeah, so, so they obviously didn't call you for this. Nope. Um, and and they, they have this really kind of tepid line like, like yeah, they're working on it, but it's not that big a deal and it's probably not going to work. You know, <laughs> like, like just this this very damp sort of towel thrown on the whole thing. Like, like, yeah, it's not that big a deal. Yeah, look, there's, there's, there's two reasons for this. Reason number one, and look, this is your former profession, so you'll have better answers than I do here. But w- one is, it's very easy to write the same story that everyone else has already written. So if you were to go on mobilevoting.org and go to our newsroom and look at all the stories, they basically all follow the same pattern, which is, you know, half of it is someone like me or Jocelyn or Sheila Nix when she, when she was running our foundation explaining from a democracy standpoint why this is so necessary and critical. And then half or three computer science professors at various schools who are desperate to feel relevant and desperate to be quoted in whatever newspaper it is, um, knowing that they'll only be quoted if they say that it's bad. And so as a result, the the template for mobile voting stories is, you know, access versus security and isn't security ultimately more important. That's sort of like 90% of all mobile voting stories everywhere. So one is this reporter was lazy and just didn't do any more work. And look, even if you look at other articles in Wall Street Journal specifically about mobile voting that we were part of and in, um, they still more or less reflect that pattern, right? So that's, that's number one is laziness. But number two, I think is fear, right? Which is whoever wrote the report, wrote the article knows nothing about cybersecurity. They know nothing about encryption. They know nothing about uh, cryptography or anything else. All they know is that they're at risk at looking stupid if they go out on a limb here. So if they say, if they're super cautious and say, yeah, you know, there's this idea, but all the experts say this thing can't work, then either one of two things happens. Either proven right, or if they're proven wrong, yeah, they were wrong, but but so were, and so was everyone else, right? It's sort of the you know, hire McKinsey to cover your ass thesis. Right. And right. so, you know, I think that they are too afraid to, to take, to go out there on a limb. And that's, you know, look, if this, I don't know who, I don't even remember the name of the reporter, and I'm sure whoever it is is a lovely human being, but if she or he was willing to go out on a limb and try to do stuff, they wouldn't spend their life writing about what other people do. And that's yep. what, that's this person's job. Dustin Bulls, V-O-L-Z, that's the reporter. Yeah. For the Wall Street Dustin, give us, give us a call if you want to learn more about mobile phone. <laughs> um, you texted me uh, with a, a story about the uh, sort of Biden's climate bill, and you said, so this in Afghanistan are like, you know, two legit 
you know, uh, achievements for the for Biden. Um, is the is it starting to turn in, in time for 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 the Democrats not to get completely blown out in, uh, in the yeah, so there, There's a few different questions there. Right. So the first is, let's assume he accomplishes nothing else is finally having the balls to end the war in Afghanistan and securing hundreds of billions of dollars to, to truly try to deal with climate change, a sufficient legacy. Um, the answer is no, because a president ought to be able to, in four years, accomplish more than two meaningful things. However, in the reality of the world that we live in, the answer may really be, yeah, it's probably not that bad, right? Like, you know, Obama had the ACA and, and not that much else. Um, I didn't agree with Trump's tax bill, but it was a meaningful piece of legislation that certainly had a big impact on public policy. But he had that and not much else. Right. And so so one is maybe Biden could argue, look, I got two things um, that's that's better than the last two people. So that's that's number one. Number All, two, one of which also Afghanistan Trump promised to do and didn't. So that's and Obama. But yeah. I mean, I thought, look, was the pullout. Um, a little not, not done as sort of smoothly as it should have been. Yeah, although I don't ever see a world where that's just going to work smoothly in reality like it might on paper or on a TV show, right? Um, but he had the balls to do it, right? And I thought that was tremendous um, that, that he was willing to do that. Um, so that's for the first way to look at it. The second way to look at it is say, will there be any more meaningful achievements by Biden? And then the question there is what happens in the midterms, right? If that at least the House flips, which I still think most experts think is highly likely, there's a very good chance that in the next two years, no piece of meaningful legislation absent like a pandemic or a terrorist attack or something where that unifies everyone for a little bit um, is going to reach Biden's desk. And therefore, at least from a legislative standpoint, he's not going to accomplish anything else. Um, there might be things like Afghanistan that he can do with his own within his own administrative and executive powers. Um, but but nothing else legislative. So I think that's I think the answer. Is this might be the last meaningful accomplishment of the Biden administration, absent a real surprise in November. And then I guess to the third question, which is, um, do we think this has any impact on November? Right. Um, so I'd say one that was your question. You then answered a bunch of other questions. But yeah, that was so question. No one. No. Like these are all measures that. Well, I think they're a lot of them sound really, really good. Um, you know, you're not going to see the benefit of these things for years, if not decades, right? So there's not going to be any sort of physical manifestation of it. Number two, if you remember, when they passed the infrastructure bill, which I guess is a Biden accomplishment, except to me, a lot of it was basic maintenance of things that you have to, of course, maintain. And two, I thought it really was a congressional victory, not a Biden victory. Um, we, I think I wrote this publicly somewhere, and I've talked on podcasts, like, you need to move this shit really fast if you want voters by the midterms and then by the 24 election to actually see any of the benefits of any of this, right? Even if it's just groundbreaking and creating jobs, let alone finishing product projects, they are not moving with the alacrity needed at all. So yeah. they're not going to see any benefit there. So I don't think that this yields any tangible political benefit. You know, what are the factors that really will impact turnout? in November, right? Because it's about turnout, right? It's, it's not really about anything else. So one would be inflation. Um, the bad news is inflation is still really high. That has driven down Biden's numbers considerably, driven down Democrats' numbers considerably, and it's still very high. The good news is gas prices are lower. They are now consistently 
below $5 and many places that are below $4. This morning I saw it was $4.53 in New York, but New York's always really expensive. So uh, that that's probably not terrible comparatively speaking. Um, so yes, if inflation is getting a little easier, and there has been some good news in the economy, the last jobs report, um, the market's been up about 15%. You know, we are seeing some prices go down. Um, that obviously is meaningful. So depending on where that goes over the next two and a half months, will really dictate a lot of who comes out and who doesn't. Because a lot of it isn't just angry, say, Republicans are coming out to defeat the Democrats. It's that when things are shitty, the party in charge, those voters tend to like kind of sit on their hands like, ah, eh, I'm not so happy about this either. Um, and when things are good, they're more motivated to go out there and, and reinforce their core beliefs. So that's number one. Number two is abortion, right? And I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows what the impact is actually going to be. Um, there are people who will tell you it's going to be really good for Republicans because it's motivated their base. There are people who are going to tell you it's really good for Democrats for the same reason. All that really matters are you know, the swing Senate elections and the handful of swing House district elections. So one of those districts is where I am upstate right now. Um, Antonio Delgado has been the sitting member uh, of Congress. He's a Democrat uh, from this area of kind of Dutchess County, Ulster County, you know, parts of upstate New York. Um, but Antonio was named lieutenant governor. Uh, he left Congress to become lieutenant governor. There is a special election tomorrow to determine who fills out the remainder of his term, which is just the rest of this year. And then another election in November to actually determine who will have it next year. Um, this is a district that's not 50-50. It's a little more Republican than Democrat, but it's pretty close. And as you drive around the district, you see signs for both candidates. The Democrat is Pat Ryan. The Republican is Mark Molinaro. Ryan is the Ulster County Executive. Molinaro is the Dutchess County Executive. And a lot of the Ryan signs, who's a Democrat, evoke choice. And then they're very specifically playing into this issue. Um, so the question is, in some ways, these microcosm elections, like Ryan Molinaro here in New York, it's 23rd or something like that. Um, why don't I know the district number? Whatever it is. Um, I should know that. Uh, so anyway, that to me will be a good indication of how choice will impact turnout in November. So that's number two. Number three would be kind of Republican enthusiasm overall. We know there's always a strong Trump vote, but in reality, that vote tends to not exist in most swing districts, so it doesn't really matter. But it could matter in some of the Senate races, uh, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, um, that are statewide and may be determined by a relatively few percentage points, right? So um, you will see overall, if Trump gets indicted between now and the election, that could help, that could hurt, but it will certainly have an impact one way or the other. Um, if the Republicans and Trump mainly do something super, super crazy, could help, could hurt. And on the flip side, Biden. Now, Biden's not going to do anything crazy because he doesn't really do crazy stuff. Um, but could something happen in the world that would overwhelm? And, and where, I, I, I even forget where we are with Hunter. I mean, is that is there is there some is there something we're about to? I, we'll put it this way. Well, I don't agree with your friend that the U.S. government allowed 9/11 to happen. I would be shocked if if a Democratic Justice Department brought down any indictments on Hunter Biden before the midterms. Yeah, I should hope not. I don't see that happening, right? So like, much in the same way, by the way, that I think some Republicans were upset that the Supreme Court did Dobbs um, back in, in June as opposed to waiting till after November because they were worried about the electoral impact. Um, so, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see Hunter Biden being a factor in the midterms. Uh, Liz Cheney got her butt kicked pretty badly last week. 
um, she will not be returning to Congress. Um, is she done as a political force, or do no. you think it's just the Liz, beginning? Liz Cheney lost the battle and won the war, right? So, so there's a few things. One is, let's assume she never returns to politics again, which I think is an unlikely assumption, but let, let's assume that. Um, yes, she is hated by hardcore Trumpers, um, but those voters turn on anyone that Trump turns on at any given moment anyway, so it's not like you can solidify your support there. But the majority of the country, certainly Democrats, independents, some Republicans would say she took a principled stance. It's very rare in politics for anyone to do that these days. I respect her, right? I've heard a lot of Democrats say in the last couple of months, I respect her. And what was so smart about it is, you know, she took a position that is, you know, politically difficult, ultimately led to her kind of short-term loss. And, and, and she knew that was going to happen when she took this position, but she also understood that if she's playing for something greater than being, you know, a member of, of the House from Wyoming in the minority party at the moment, um, she had to do something more drastic and dramatic. And actually going against the grain was a smart political move to do that. So yes, she's not returning to Congress in January, but she is now this national force that could weigh in on all kinds of elections on both sides of the aisle. She could run for statewide or even national office. Um, and she's made herself a historic figure, or at least a semi-historic figure. And so what she did to me is no more or less political than what everyone else does. It was just a lot smarter. She just decided that the terms were different for her. I don't understand all the time. Like I remember, you know, in New York, uh, at one point the state Senate was tied and um, the gay marriage was, was, this was maybe a decade ago now or a little more, was up for, for consideration. And I understand why one of the Democrats didn't go to the Republicans and say, you know what? You give us gay marriage, you vote for this. I will join the Republicans. You will therefore become the majority. You will gain all the power. I will lose my seat as soon as the next election happens for doing that. But I'm responsible for gay marriage becoming legal. That's worth it, right? And it was amazing to me that no one had the balls or the wisdom to actually do that. Right. But she didn't actually – but so, say that's a law that gets passed. There's something that happens. I mean, Liz Cheney, what effect did she actually have? Oh, I think – I, I mean, think she stood up and, and took shit and I, and I, well, I guess I admire that. hearings, I would argue, are very significant and meaningful. They are okay. something that will be taught in the history books for a very long time. Um, we'll see if there are indictments. I would be shocked if no, – well, first of all, there have been indictments, right? There's 40-something people have already gone to jail uh, who actually stormed the Capitol itself. Maybe the number's bigger at this point. Um, but there might be indictments of political figures, maybe even Trump. And so I think that is really, really significant. Um, and so I, I think in this case, it is equivalent to a law. Okay. Um, do you want to talk about weed trucks in Times Square? Oh, yeah. Here was the thing that I thought was so... So it was an article in the Daily News on, I think, Saturday saying that uh, the NYPD had finally shut down a bunch of the mobile vending trucks that sold weed in Times Square and around the city. And, and what I can't understand is how it lasted this long. Because the state of New York is effectively auctioning off the licenses to sell cannabis in a retail way. Uh, they're having a very competitive process that's all kinds of criteria based on NWBE and DEI, all kinds of things that, that are you know important. Um, and what's the value in having one of these licenses and going through this whole process to get a license and paying for a license when someone could park a truck right outside of your store selling weed without any license at all, right? It just seemed 
crazy to me that the state had not taken action on this until then. You know, they have this franchise in these dispensaries and they completely incredibly valuable, incredibly (laughs) valuable. And they completely undermine the value of that franchise by allowing illegal competitors to exist and not doing something about it. I really do believe that if I were, you know, when I was deputy governor, if that happened, I would have sent the state police into every one of these places and shut them down immediately. Not out of ideology, I support legalization of all drugs, but because it was undermining the value of an asset that I was holding. And so I I guess- What does that that tell you? Look, look, I, I I was walking through Canal Street this weekend and there were more, you know, street vendors selling knockoff handbags than I've ever seen. In, yeah. in my in my fifty years as a New Yorker, and I think you know it used to be that the, there'd be some kind of cat and mouse game between them and the cops, and people would be like swiping, you know, like like throwing the, it all. The, the difference there, so I've actually worked on this issue specifically on the enforcement side. Um, the difference there is if you are a major luxury retailer, you're not so much worried about Canal Street anymore. You're worried about Amazon. You're about all of these fake goods being sold on big e-commerce platforms. And that's where you really lose a lot of business. Well, I, I guess that's a, that's a really good point. But I think at least part of where I was going with it was it, it's pretty clear to people that basic laws are not being enforced on the streets of New York. So these, you know, these trucks, they, they said in the Daily News that they were all they all had out of town plates or most of them did. You know, there's just people from around the world know like, hey, guess what? You can go to New York City, do whatever you want. Look, there are laws that we choose not to enforce. There are plenty of crazy laws on the books that we just don't enforce because society has passed that by. But in this particular case, so on the Canal Street thing, you know, Louis Vuitton might say this is undermining the value of my asset. But the city of New York, the state of New York has no stake in the game one way or the other. I mean, they get some tax revenue, but that's about it. Um, But when you are actually the business itself and you control the dispensary licenses, Right. No, I understand. I agree. It's a it's it's a it's a different thing, but I do think there's a. Uh, a I mean, I'm I, I feel like for certain you agree that there's a there's a feeling of lawlessness. So it, there there are different reasons and different incentives. Well, yeah, involved. and that's a separate thing, right? Which is crime more than any other issue in my experience. Perception shapes reality. Uh, I have a, a friend in the governor's office who is constantly arguing with us uh, on our political text uh, chain, consultant text chain that the bail laws have not resulted in big increases in crime and it's a bunch of other factors and it's all exaggerated and overwrought and whatever else. And even if he's statistically right, he's wrong because it feels unsafe, it is unsafe because each thing plays into the other. That's why the broken windows theory I thought was so effective and so important because it said if we allow turnstile jumping, if we allow urination, if we allow graffiti, it creates a sense of lawlessness that then leads to acts of violence, right? Um, and if you get sh- if you crack down the little things, you have a much better chance of preventing the big things. Um, you know, New York City stopped enforcing quality of life laws when de Blasio took office. And the net impact over a period of eight or nine years now is that there's a sit- feeling of true lawlessness in New York City. And that helps prompt the shootings, the muggings, the rapings, all of the truly terrible things that are happening. And so, yeah, you know, this is a major, major failure uh, by New York's government. I think Eric Adams is trying to do something about it, um, but he hasn't been in office that long yet. Um, But ultimately, if you really, truly want to show that things are safe, the NYPD is a paramilitary organization. They have 40,000 uniformed officers, something like that. You know, if, if they were to say at any given moment, 
we are going to flood the subways with cops or we're going to flood Canal Street with cops or whatever it is. The Canal Street, I don't think anyone feels that their safety is threatened as a result of a fake handbag being sold. No, but whatever it is, I think it's really, really important and valuable because the psychological impact in some ways is just as meaningful as the actual statistics themselves. Um, I'm going to give you one minute to tell us how great the Rage Against the Machine concert was at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, well, first of all, you were there too. So um, Rage Against the Machine and Run the Jewels played at the Garden like a week ago Friday. And I'm actually a big Run the Jewels fan. I like Rage, but I'm a Run the Jewels fan. In fact, you know, when you invited me to the concert, Bradley, you said it was a Run the Jewels concert. I didn't know till later that Rage was going to be playing. Yeah, that's why if it was just Rage, I probably wouldn't have gotten the tickets. I wouldn't have, right? But I wanted to see Run the Jewels. And I ended up making it a party and invited about eight, you know, I think 17 people came and it was, it was really fun. Um, and what was amazing, Run the Jewels were, were, were good, but honestly not great. They were, they were fine. It was your standard, right? Well, standard. Well, they also got, they also got the treatment, right? The opening band treatment. Yeah. So the, the exactly. lighting, the sound, everything was at a much lower level of. And of, then Rage and those guys are in their mid fifties, right? Are they that and, old? In their mid fifties? I think so. They were, uh, oh. Man, look, they're older than than me, and and I'm 48. So yeah. Um, so and Zach De La Rocha, the the lead singer and kind of the whole animus behind the band, you know, the whole spirit behind the band, has a physical injury and had to spend the entire concert seated. And yet these guys fucking rock, man. I mean, like the I couldn't garden- believe that a concert with a guy, the lead singer, sitting down could be that intense. And I mean, it was insane. I mean, he he. It, it was it was it, it like defied like like laws of the universe. Yeah, I mean, I've never not never, but I've rarely been to a concert where people are that excited, that energetic, that engaged from the first song through the final encore. And usually, it's for a band that is really popular right now, right? Not someone that was a big deal in the nineteen nineties and hasn't really ever been since. Um, and yet. Maybe it's just nostalgia, but these guys put on. If if you are a Rage Against the Machine fan, but you're not like a super fan, and you're seeing that they're touring, I would go. Um, well, they're not touring. That was the, you know they 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 canceled the rest of their tour. That was the last two they did because of his injury. But when he heals yeah. and, and yeah, they schedule, um, because it turns out that the show that they put on is so incredible that the energy and the excitement alone is more than worth it. No, you don't even have to be a big fan. I'm not a big Rage fan, and I was blown away and thought it was fantastic. Cool. Bradley, uh, we'll see you on Thursday with Chris and yep. Megan to talk about uh, talk about the the New York State primary. And uh, until then, sounds good. Are right, you go?